0: It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
1: Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long.
0: Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my trusty co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Good to have you here, and it's also good to have the man of the hour, as always, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Full disclosure, I have been playing in a fantasy football league for about 15 years. That's sort of a low-end form of uh, sports betting. But in the 15 years since, betting on major league sports has not only become mainstream, but it has also been sanctioned, endorsed, and promoted by the major professional leagues. Once upon a time, the professional sports world eschewed gambling for fear that it would taint their games. What would the ghost of shoeless Joe Jackson of the 1919 Black Sox say about today's sports betting world? According to our first guest today, quote, professional sports in the U.S. now are part of a multi billion dollar corporate gambling enterprise, unquote.
2: I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much.
0: They have stopped fighting gambling and have instead embraced it. And state governments, as they have done with lotteries, have seen it as a source of tax revenue. Our first guest is New York Times reporter Eric Lipton, who in his investigation of the sports gambling world reveals that, surprise, surprise, the tax benefits largely have been promises unmet, oversight has been lax, and even some universities, in an effort to get a piece of the action, have been encouraging their students to bet. And it's all available on your phone. It's called iGaming. What could possibly go wrong? Yes, the holiday season is upon us. Actually, it's been upon us since the day after Halloween. I wouldn't be surprised if next year we didn't start hearing Christmas music the day after the 4th of July. The holidays have been the climax of the year-long marketing season ever since Coca-Cola invented the modern-day Santa Claus. Sorry, kids, you can handle the truth. You can't handle the truth! No, Jack, they can Our second guest today is Teresa Murray. Miss Murray is the director of the Public Interest Research Group's Consumer Watchdog Office. Which looks out for consumers' health, safety, and financial security, and she has a new report from Toyland. Can you believe that about two hundred thousand people go to an emergency room each year because of toy-related injuries or illnesses? She's going to provide us with tips for parents and gift givers, and also give us a look at the emerging threat of toys with technology capable of invading our children's privacy. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhiber. But first, let's get the over/under on the reality of sports betting. David?
3: Eric Lipton is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner and an investigative reporter for the New York Times. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thanks for having me.
4: Well, Eric, this time you really hit the jackpot with your colleagues. This is the most detailed exposure of the spread of sports gambling and other gambling, online gambling that's gonna saturate the country and create a lot of addicted users as your article alluded to. The first article was in November 20, 2022, listeners, New York Times. It's called Cigars, Booze, Money, How a Lobbying Blitz Made Sports Betting Ubiquitous. Why don't you describe for our listeners the spread of gambling? Once it started, I'll give you a baseline. When I first confronted organized gambling, it was in Las Vegas. There were a few big hotels in the desert and what they called Golden Gulch, the downtown gambling casinos. Then we had Atlantic City open up on the East Coast. And all during this period, the churches would oppose it, the social norms frowned on it, and it never got a foothold in the other states. There were the numbers rackets in the back of cigar stores, of course, going on all the time. Now, compare that time in, say, the 1950s and 60s with the spread of it now. What are all these lobbyists? And they hire former state attorney generals, prominent legislators. I mean, the money's spread everywhere to lobby one state after another. What are they heading for? What have they achieved so far in different kinds of gambling? And who are the players like sports leagues? Give us the picture. I mean what's happened with sports betting since 2018
2: when the Supreme Court essentially nullified a federal law that prohibited states outside of Nevada mm-hmm. from legalizing sports betting is is actually, you know, pretty extraordinary. I mean, we've had the largest expansion of legalized gambling in the United States history. So while you have, you know, 31 states that now have sports betting, the thing that really has is transformational is that many of those states have mobile betting. There are a total of 22 states that have mobile betting. And so the distinction is that instead of simply having like a lottery where you go to the store and buy your lottery tickets or a casino where you go to the casino and you make bets, in 22 states, you can now in your phone legally place bets 24 hours a day, you know, anywhere just about in the state, whether you physically are, and really is there's no limit on how frequently you can bet and we all know how addictive phones are in terms of you know social media and other applications and so that's the thing that is most transformative about this and the the end goal for the sports betting industry is not sports betting it's actually something they call i gaming and i gaming you know sports betting is like a, a stepping stone towards iGaming. gaming and iGaming gaming is effectively a complete casino package in your phone it's blackjack it's poker it's Slot machines and other, you know, roulette games, in which you know, because the the profit margin for the casinos is much higher on iGaming than it is on sports betting, because the casinos are the gambling operators. You know, you can't predict unless it's fixed, which it you know generally is not fixed. But you can't predict the outcome of games, and so they have a harder time. Their profit margin is lower, but they have a better sense as to how much they're going to make on traditional casino games, and they're pushing. States that have already adopted sports betting to move on now to iGaming. And, you know, we'll see how successful they are. But already we have witnessed just since 2018 the largest expansion of legalized gambling in the United States history.
4: Just to put it at the end game, so to speak, listeners, what they're aiming for is you could be sitting in your living room watching the Yankees play the Mets, and you can bet on the forthcoming pitch by the Yankee picture in terms of the speed of the pitch that's registered, whether it's 90 miles, 95 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. That's the granular micro addiction that they're pushing for. And of course, you know, when you open it up to the mobile phone, you open it up to children. It's very hard to control once it's decentralized to that degree. Who are the major players? You mentioned Major League Baseball. Who are the and the casinos? Who are the major players apart from the lobbyists who are pushing this in state after state?
2: Yeah, there's multiple tiers, and to some extent, one of the things I've observed is that it requires. A, a kind of a, an agreement among the consortium of gambling interests to get legislation passed. When you have a defections from any particular piece of it, then they usually sabotage the legislation. It's not like some legislators that are standing up against these bills. For the most part, it's when the industry chooses to fratricide and to kill the bill that it doesn't pass, as I saw, I actually witnessed firsthand in Missouri and as had just recently happened in California, where two referendums failed because there was disagreements among the different industry sectors. But I mean, based Basically, the different levels of players in this space are the professional leagues, the Major League Baseball, the National Football, you know, hockey, all of the professional sports teams, including golf. And then you've got the brick and mortar casino companies, which are very intensely interested in this and see this as a way to change the demographics of their brick and mortar casinos where they've seen kind of older less wealthy people have become the most common customer and they're pretty upset with this demographic change and they see the sports better as a much younger more affluent demographic and they once they get them into the sports betting app then they can try to get them into other types of gambling and they have them in their database so you have the casino companies you have the sports leagues and then you also have the sports betting applications DraftKings, FanDuel, and then also you know BetMGM, or Barstool Sports with Penn National. So you have sometimes these combinations of these casinos with sports betting apps, and so that's the bulk. But you know the one thing that I also observed is that in states where you have existing casinos, they have a pretty big lobbying operation that is resident in those states and a fair amount of clout because they are significant employers in a state like Kansas, where they have a certain number of casinos with all these employees. And so they have already a fair number of lobbyists and relationships with state legislators and their important constituency. So once the sports betting apps and the professional leagues team up with the casinos, they have a fair amount of clout going into this, and and they use that clout pretty effectively.
4: And there's no end to their reach. Tell us about how they're going into the universities and name some of them. Yeah, that was pretty surprising to me to
2: see, and there was actually as part of the series of stories that we did, one of our colleagues worked with a group of students at Columbia University in the journalism school, and they examined these, essentially there's these contracts in Louisiana State University, Michigan State University, University of Colorado, University of Maryland, University of Denver. Arkansas State University, University of Nevada, Reno, and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where the sports betting companies, particularly Caesars Sportsbook, has signed deals with the universities to co-market sports betting apps. And so they pay them millions of dollars. And then in exchange, they promote the sports betting apps because they have all of these intense college sports fans. But the problem is, of course, that their undergraduates are underage in many cases. And And therefore, these marketing appeals are often reaching underage people who aren't supposed to be betting, and the universities are getting paid to push these sports betting apps. And there's been a a really big backlash against those agreements, including by some of the major companies like FanDuel and BetMGM have distanced themselves from this, whereas like a Caesar Sportsbook or PointsBet, which is another sports betting platform, are the ones that have these agreements, and so far, they're still defending them.
4: I'm sure some of our listeners are saying, how could university administrators, you know, institutions of higher education, open up the campus to this kind of addiction? What are they
2: getting in return? These They're getting people? money. I mean, the money, a million plus dollars going to these universities – And it has caused, you know, just in recent weeks after our story was published, in particularly in some places like Michigan State University, there's been a fair amount of debate on the campus about this agreement. And the Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut wrote a letter to Caesar Sportsbook and asked them to terminate the agreement, saying that they are, you know, predatory and that they're effectively targeting underage betters. And the American Gaming Association is also examining the issue. So there's a there's a fair amount of debate going on in the industry right now over the appropriateness of these, and, and we'll see how this plays out.
4: Well, these contracts between the university and these gambling outfits were really not public until you used the open records laws in state after state. And now they are public. Is that correct? And are, are the college newspapers reporting it? Is, is that helping that you burst them into the public limelight? I mean, there had been a
2: decent amount of local news coverage of the fact that, and in fact, the in many cases the Caesar Sportsbooks and others did press releases at the time that they signed these deals. But what they were not willing to release to our colleagues that worked on the story, and this there were four stories in this series, and this this is a story that I did not work on, but they were not willing to release the specifics of the deals and the correspondence relating to the negotiations with like a Caesar Sportsbook as to the terms of the deals and the copies of the contract. And also the internal discussions in the university, where there at times were some, you know, reluctance about, you know, the appearance of having this. These are all things that we then got because these are, you know, state universities for the most part, and through open records requests. And now we have the visibility into the negotiations. And yeah, so now the, you know, there's more being written about this in the campus newspapers and, and really nationally. And it turns out the Wall Street Journal did a story on the university deals after our story came out. And so I, the, basically the topic is now getting more national attention than it previously had been.
4: Tell us the dollar figure here. How much in billions of dollars are they reaping every month from gamblers around the country? I know the estimates are widely varying, as you say in your article, but give us an idea how big it is. So in the first three quarters of
2: this year, there were $63 billion worth of bets placed at sports bets in the United States. And then if you looked at the net revenue after payout of the winnings, because in fact, you know, sports betters do pretty well relative to say casino or lottery. So the net revenue to the operators after the, all the, the payouts, was $4.9 billion in the first three quarters of this year. But then in fact, one of the things that's happened is many of these sports betting applications have been giving out massive numbers of what they call free bets to try to incentivize people to download their apps. And I mean, it's almost like a billion dollars worth of free bets and other deductions that we were able to count up that have happened in the last 12 months. And so that's cutting the, the free bets is reducing their net revenues But they're also essentially those people are downloading their apps and signing up for sports betting and then becoming, you know, regular customers or maybe even addicted customers. So it's kind of a loss leader kind of a thing where, you know, you like the, the bus that used to be offered to Atlantic City to go bet at the casino, the free bus ride you would get. So essentially, basically, we're talking about a market that if you were to look at it over the last four quarters, is about $90 billion worth of bets that were placed if they looked at the last four quarters. And the net revenue is about $6.4 billion if you looked at the last quarters for these sports betting platforms.
4: And that's just sports betting you're talking about. When you're talking about promotion, they, in effect, give you free cash or credit to play with. So you can, without using any of your money, start betting. And then get addicted to it and the corporate lawyers have made sure that when these companies pass out the free money in terms of promotion to attract customers it's deductible under the federal income tax no what it is is that
2: one of the things the legislatures have to choose as they're legalizing sports betting in each state is how much to tax the sports betting companies for the right to be able to offer gaming in the state. So it goes anywhere from 51% tax rate, which is really high in New York and New Hampshire. So 51% of the net revenues in New York go to the state or to as low as 8% of the net revenues. So a couple of the things that the legislatures have to decide is how high will your tax rate be? And then secondly, will you allow the sports betting companies to deduct from taxable revenue? all the promotional free bets they're giving out and like something like 18 or so states have offered some form of deductions on free bets some of them have offered unlimited deductions on free bets and it has meant a major decline in the tax revenues that they've received so they're deductible under state income tax but not under the federal income tax that's right well it's really a state the state tax of the net revenues that the gaming companies And so it's essentially a cost. They they apply a tax to the gambling companies. In exchange for the right to do business, we will tax you somewhere between 8% or 51% of your net revenues. We will tax in exchange for the right to do sports betting in our state.
4: Well, the lures that these gambling companies use, they say, well, this will create more jobs. Number two, that it will create more tax revenue and you can use for public services. Is this being borne out? I mean, the thing that, you know, we
2: did a a very labor-intensive analysis of this exact question, and what we did is we took a report that the American Gaming Association had done in 2017 before the Supreme Court moved, and they did estimates in which they essentially pushed out to state legislators that said, here's how much you can expect to see in tax revenues if you can legalize sports betting. And the amount that you'll receive will depend upon the tax rate that you adopt. And so they had various estimates of what the tax revenues would be based on the tax rates that the states enacted into law. So we took the actual amounts that the states enacted as tax rates, and then took the number that the American Gaming Association predicted. And we looked at how much in tax revenues have these 14 states that have mobile betting actually received. And what we found the 14 states that had mobile betting with tax rates that were in range of what the American Gaming Association suggested that they use. I mean, what we found was that in most of those states that they've received a lot less in tax revenue than the American Gaming Association had predicted. and some of them, a lot less, less than half of the tax revenues. And a good part of it has to do with how much in free bets the states were allowing the gambling companies to deduct. But the thing that was interesting was that we also did the analysis for states that have super high tax rates, like you know, New York and New Hampshire and Rhode Island. And what we saw is that the states that ignored the American Gaming Association advice, which is you better adopt a low tax rate or people aren't going to bet on your platforms, that the states that ignored those that the gambling industry's advice and enacted really high tax rates like New York have seen much higher per capita tax revenues. So, I mean, New York has seen an incredible mm-hmm. number, $545 million in the first 10 months of the year. It's a crazy number. It's over half of the total state tax revenues that sports betting has produced in the United States is just from one state of New York, and they have a 51% tax rate. $545 million is a lot of money that New York State has seen.
4: The broader argument counter to that by economists is if the same money that the gamblers spent in the marketplace It would create more jobs and it would create more tax revenue, sales tax and so on. If you just went in stores and bought instead of lost the money in their gambling activities. So in terms of of a net, it's considered by most economists just a loser, just like putting all the billions of dollars in stadiums, the same amount of tax money spent on other things like infrastructure would be a much more expansive job producer and tax benefit
2: as well. The gambling industry argues that you make the point that if they don't spend the money on gambling, then they would spend it on retail or other things in the state, but still see tax revenue. But they argue that there already is a fair amount of black market sports betting going on. And that that's totally untaxed, and that essentially what they say that they're doing is trying to bring sports betting into a regulated space that is also a taxed space. So, I mean, that's their counter to the suggestion that this is that essentially this money would be spent, you know, in a
4: retail place and perhaps you know still see tax revenues. We're talking with Eric Lipton of the New York Times. Do they have any evidence of the extent of? illegal gambling that's left? I mean, you know, (laughs) there's not much incentive anymore to do illegal gambling. It's more legal gambling. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things we pressed them on is they
2: had all of these estimates as to how much in illegal gambling sports betting there was. And they said it could be as much as $500 billion a year. And we asked them to sort of, you know, show us the, you know, where do you get that number from? And they couldn't really produce hard data as to where that number came from. And so it's sort of hard to know just how much you know, offshore black market sports betting that they're displacing. But what we know is that you know, how much in total sports betting there is, and it's pretty considerable. And, but it's hard to know how much of that is displaced betting. If there's 100, almost $100 billion in handle, how much of that came from untaxed,
4: unregulated, I saw a piece in your article that intrigued me, and it wasn't developed very much. I'll quote it. Even some of the industry's one-time backers now say they paid insufficient attention to the risk that gambling would cause waves of addiction, end quote. Well, there is a counterweight here. They're not very big. It's called the National Council on Problem Gambling that sometimes shows up with their limited staff at these legislatures to oppose these bills. How far is this concern about addiction? Because addiction can lead to serious mental health problems. It could lead to unemployment by people. It could lead to suicide. And the gambling industry, in their moments of pause, are very worried about uncontrollable spread of addiction, especially among young people and teenagers who get access here. What kind of concern and what are they doing
2: about it? having spent time this year in inside the state capitals in Missouri and Kansas for quite amount, a fair amount of time, which is, you know, the New York Times and to all the subscribers out there that you subscribe to it. I mean, you know, it's really expensive and, and time consuming to basically take up residence inside these state capitals. And I had a photographer with me as well. But that's the kind of reporting you really have to do to get some visibility into this. But when I was inside of those state capitals, there was almost no presence of opposition. To these sports betting bills. I mean, you had in Missouri, there were something like 75 different lobbyists that were registered on this. And then maybe there was there was one woman that was coming in from Washington, D.C., who represented the National Problem Gambling Association. And, And maybe there was like one other lobbyist that was a local activist who was expressing concerns about the potential for addiction, but they were completely overwhelmed by the presence of the industry lobbyists. And even the National Problem Gambling Organization is funded by the sports betting companies, which, you know, you look at who their donors are. And I think that, you know, all you have to do is look at Britain and see, you know, there's been news coverage recently in the papers there in the Times of London that talk about the, you know, they are at least a decade ahead of us in terms of broad sports betting and in Australia and in Britain and other parts of Europe. There's a real, an appreciation that has become much more evident and the EU government and the individual governments there that are seeing the evidence of intense addiction problems, particularly among young people relative to sports betting. And they're starting to move to discuss restrictions on advertising and promotions around sports betting. And so I think that, you know, we're a good number of years away from the saturation of this in American society, but I do expect to see, you know, further consequences from just the constant marketing of sports betting. It's on the TV constantly. The people are talking about betting odds constantly. It's, it's become a part of the fabric of sports in a way that kind of has transformed the sports experience in the United States into effectively a gambling operation.
4: Well, I saw in your article the most ominous thing on the horizon, and I'll quote it. Top NASCAR drivers and their teams are paid to promote sports betting. Professional baseball and hockey players recently won their league's blessings to sign their own endorsement deals, end quote. You think this could bring down sports? I mean, betting always is associated with corruption, with crossing the line, even if they've legalized the normal process. Envy, whistleblowing, payoffs behind the table. This is really stunning. I mean, you're going to see someone like Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, Signing, I'm not saying he's going to do it, but someone like Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees could, under the new rules, sign an endorsement deal. And what kind of endorsement deal would it be? I
2: mean, essentially, the player then becomes a branded part of the marketing campaign and they can publicly endorse the product, and in certain, in certain, like in NASCAR, they can wear like a, you know, they can advertise the sports betting platform. I don't know that that we're going to see games being thrown because of corruption that is actually infiltrated. Players and sports teams. In another way, I think that it has increased engagement with professional sports because if you have a financial interest in the outcome of the game or that you are more engaged in that game. And maybe that's a good thing depending on your perspective. Or but I mean, I think that the challenge is to try to manage the potential for addiction and you know, over excessive use of available funds in a way that could cause financial harm to individuals. And how do you manage that? Mm-hmm. But without question, the thing that is most interesting here is just, you know, yeah, it's true that many people bet on the side or, you know, the basketball, college basketball betting or Super Bowl betting. I mean, you know, that's something around for so long. But the institutionalization and and the, the legalization, and now it's become just such a part of the enterprise of sports it has fundamentally transformed the kind of the relationship we have with this, with such an you know, important part of our culture, which is sports is, is such a major factor in American society. And now it is essentially a part of a gambling enterprise.
4: And it's going to include college sports as well, given yes, these deals in many with states. universities.
2: No, but uh, in many states, you you're it, betting you... on college games. And certain states, they limit the ability to bet on college games because they're concerned that this is going to then entice students to be betting, even if they're not legally allowed to bet.
4: Well, you make an accurate point, I think. I mean, a major league ball player is not going to strike out in a key game in order to collect some hidden gambling bets by the family or friends. But it's terrible for appearances, and it's fertile for suspicions. Where you're sitting there, and you're watching this, and you know there are all kinds of endorsements and entanglements, and you say, yeah, he couldn't have bungled that play. That was deliberate. And so there's a stench that begins arising by people who suspect that this greed does penetrate the games. Well, we'll see how that spreads out. I want to have you talk about what I think is the arch-villain here, the guy who dreamt up all these complex parts of the legislation, techniques of lobbying, dealing with the tax laws, putting in amendments. At the last minute in Kansas, saying that 80% of the revenues from this deal that Barker got through will go to build a new stadium for the Kansas City Chiefs. His name is Jeremy Kudon, K-U-D-O-N. He is a lawyer with a large firm, Oric firm, O-R-R-I-C-K. I think it has one of its headquarters is in San Francisco. It used to be a fairly good antitrust law firm. It was started by a former Justice Department official, Mr. Oreck, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us about the brain behind all this.
2: I mean, you know, villain is a pretty strong word, and I I wouldn't kind of endorse that characterization. And, you know, we got to know Jeremy through the reporting on this process. And I mean, he didn't actually, Kudon didn't play a role in the 80% set aside in Kansas. He did have lobbyists that were working, and I met his lobbyists there in Kansas, and he had lobbyists in Missouri as well. And so he has a network of lobbyists across the United States that are working to pass this legislation. And I mean, what Kudon did was that he started working with FanDuel and DraftKings back What they started with was called daily fantasy sports, in which that you were betting on kind of makeup, you know, imaginary games. And that was the first kind of toe in the water that they, starting in like 2014, 2015, that they worked to prevent states from mis- determining that that was an illegal betting, and then they got legislation passed across the United States to defend the daily fantasy sports. And then they transitioned into sports betting. You know, this FanDuel and DraftKings, again, they never. I think that especially DraftKings never saw daily fantasy sports as the end of the of the line. They always wanted to expand out to both sports betting and then you know, iGaming. And so Kudon had played a critical role both with daily fantasy sports and with sports betting, and coming up with you know creative legal arguments like in for example in New York State, you know, the constitution required that the gambling could only take place in certain locations. And so they said, well, if you put the computer server in the certain locations where the sports bets will come in, then that should be, you know, sufficient to to meet the constitutional requirements in New York. And that was something. You know, that Kudon pushed to the very state officials in New York State. And initially, Governor Cuomo then at the time said, forget about it. That's ridiculous. We're not going to agree with that interpretation. But then, you know, Cuomo's people ended up adopting it when the sports betting industry was going to bring a lot of tax revenues to New York State.
4: And they hired the chief lawyer for Cuomo to be a right. lobbyist. And-
2: Right, as an advisor to some of these companies, one of the lawyers for Cuomo, yes. And so, I mean, Kudan has played an important role of building this. He calls it the Sports Betting Alliance. And the Sports Betting Alliance has sort kind of brought together, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel, along with some of the major league sports operations. And as I said before, what I have seen in the States is that the only time you get this legislation passed is when you have the industry and all of the industry's lobbyists and influencers that have lined up behind a single bill, because as soon as you have them, you know, at odds with each other, then that's what takes the bills down. And so that's what Kudan is, is doing is building that consortium of special interest to all lobby for the same goal. And they generally succeed when they're all lined up in the same place. And he's done it, you know, he's, he's you know, billed a lot of hours selling this practice across the United States.
4: Yeah. And listeners, Eric is right in not accepting my characterization. He is a reporter. My characterization of Jeremy Coudon as a villain is based on my widespread knowledge over the years about what corporate law firms do and the techniques that they use. In fact, one of Eric's colleagues, David Enrich, was on this show recently with his brilliant and very detailed book on the giant law firm Jones Day, which intertwined itself with the Trump administration and bullied a lot of innocent consumers representing manufacturers of hazardous products, among other things. And the reason why I characterized him as, as a villain, Eric, is because of the techniques he used. It's one thing for him to try to push these bills through based on evidence and arguments for, obviously, the public good, because that's what legislators are supposed to be doing. But he connected himself with gobs of campaign money, all kinds of receptions, gifts, as you noted in Kansas, whiskey, other kinds of emoluments, not to mention corrupting the process by taking former attorney generals like Attorney General Oakley of Massachusetts and turning him into lobbyists, feeding the public cynicism. Among people, that you know, all politicians are crooks, they're just waiting to cash in after they leave government. So it's a very seedy operation. And as good a reporter as you are, you must know that there's a lot more seedy stuff that hasn't been made public. A lot of exposes are the tips of icebergs, it's almost impossible to go into the detail of whether these lobbyists are getting jobs for relatives of, of lawmakers and other techniques that have often surface. Kudon is a smart guy who has figured out how to,
2: you know, legally and everything. I saw he did was legal. Work the system to his advantage and to his client's advantage. And like the whiskey and the cigar party was was funded by other sports betting lobbyists, not his sports betting lobbyists. It was Penn National and Sporting KC, Sporting Kansas City, which is a soccer team. Anyway, it just that's a legal system that's set up, and that he has pursued his agenda through that legal system.
4: Do you think that? there's ever an asymptotic curve to the gambling process by people? In other words, is there a time when enough people start losing and the odds are always against them? The odds always favor the house, as they say in Las Vegas. Do you think that after a while, it'll start to decline? I mean, the frequency of customers at Atlantic City casinos certainly declined what was your sense in studying this whole industry is this something that people will see as a novelty and they'll love it and then after they start losing their shirt they won't have any part of it except for those who are chronically addicted into
2: bankruptcy one of the interesting things that is happening in sports betting now is like fanduel in particular is pushing a way of betting that's called parlay bets and the parlay bet is something where you do a bet on a sequence of outcomes And so multiple games and the odds of winning that are much lower on the multiple games because you have to have a series of variables that go your way in order to get your reward. But you get a much better payout if you do a parlay bet than if you do a a bet on a single outcome of a game. And the interesting thing is that the parlay bets have a much better profit margin for a company like FanDuel because people end up losing them more frequently because they're pursuing a bigger payout. It's just like, you know, lottery is a really bad bet for you because you're most likely going to lose the lottery, but you people look at these jackpots and they think, gosh, I'm going to become a, you know, a multimillionaire by buying this lottery ticket. And the point I make is that, you know, for a lot of people, the possibility of winning a lot of money is a pretty big incentive. And even if their odds are really low, there are certain people that are going to continue to make those bets and they're going to increasingly do parlay bets, even though FanDuel knows that they have a higher profit margin on them, they're becoming more popular. So I think that there's, you know, look at how long lotteries have been around and people have been buying lottery tickets, even though you're most likely going to lose. Our slot machines have been around and people have playing slot machines and the odds are really bad on slot machines. And I think that the new technologies and, and the increase increasing accessibility of gambling opportunities you know, is going to mean that more people are going to gamble because it's right in your pocket. You don't have to even go out of your house to bet legally anymore. I mean, eventually, they're going to have to continue to present you with new scintillating options. And I think that that that's one of the things the companies are going to work on is bringing you new parlay bets, as an example, to bring you new fascinating ways to, to bet your money and that's up to them to come up with these creative solutions but i think that we're going to see more and more sports betting and you know they're already targeting New states like Texas, and they just lost referendums in California, but they're certainly not done in California. They're targeting Missouri, that they haven't legalized it, and you know other states, you know in the South, that have more conservative legislatures that haven't adopted it are still, you know, waiting. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia still have not legalized. Alabama still have not legalized sports betting. So there's still a market for them to pursue, and you can believe that they're going to be out there pushing the state legislators to open up even more states to sports betting.
4: On that note, thank you very much, Eric, for your time and for your laborious work on this subject, as well as other prior Pulitzer Prize winning and other journalistic awards articles that you have earned over the years. And good luck on your next project yet to be disclosed.
2: Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thanks for speaking with me about this.
0: We've been speaking with Eric Lipton. We'll link to the series on sports gambling at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, the holiday season is in full swing. If you want to buy toys for your kids, your grandkids, nieces, and nephews, you won't want to miss what our next guest has to say. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber.
1: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 9, 2022. I'm Russell Mochiber. A Delta Airlines captain has won a complete legal victory when Delta finally threw in the towel on a six-year dispute that one judge said weaponized a mental health investigation against her. That's according to a report from A.V. Webb. Carleen Pettit was awarded $500,000 by a Labor Department tribunal. The airline was also forced to reinstate her as an international captain after determining airline executives plotted to use a bogus bipolar disorder diagnosis to bar her from flying. The action came after Pettit, who was working on a doctoral thesis, submitted a 43-page report critical of Delta's safety culture. Delta vowed to appeal the award in the name of safety, but made a business decision and folded its case last week. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
0: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman. As you do your last-minute holiday shopping, our next guest wants you to know there is trouble in Toyland. David?
3: Teresa Murray is a consumer watchdog with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund, and she directs U.S. PIRG's Consumer Watchdog Office, which looks out for consumers' health, safety, and financial security. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
5: Thanks for having me.
4: Welcome indeed, Teresa. We're going to focus now on your brand new report titled Trouble in Toyland 2022. An investigation that shows dangerous recalled toys are easy to buy. Meanwhile, parents need to do more to check toys and adhere to warning labels. We've been giving some attention over the years to dangerous toys. There's a section of the American Museum of Tort Law in Winston, Connecticut, devoted to dangerous toys. A lot of visitors wonder, I mean, how can a toy be dangerous? Well, there's a attorney Schwartz in Boston really started this whole field. He would sue toy manufacturers. Many of these toys came in unregulated, no safety standards from overseas. And there were chemistry sets that would explode and loose parts of toys would be swallowed by children. Children would be injured in a variety of ways because the labeling was not accurate to warn the parents. And so there's a whole display of his work at the American Museum of Tort Law. And he would go on the the Today Show before Christmas every year and talk about the 10 most dangerous toys on the market. And he got a lot of progress. In fact, even the statistics that you point out, Teresa, in your report indicates that while it's still a problem to be seriously attended to, it was considerably worse in terms of death injuries in past years. And the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which we got through back in the early 70s in Congress, started paying more attention to that. First of all, how do you define a toy?
5: Well, it's an interesting question. We define a toy as really anything that anybody of any age would play with. My husband has toys. But for purposes of regulation, the CPSC generally looks at children's toys aimed at children 12 and under.
4: And you say that about 200,000 people, including 70,000 children four years and younger, go to emergency rooms at hospitals or clinics each year because of toy-related injuries or illnesses, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Obviously, that's just based on reports that emergency room doctors and others send to the Consumer Product Safety Commission in a systemic way, but there are a lot more injuries that don't get reported. Give us some examples of some of these dangerous toys.
5: Sure. Well, and you're absolutely correct that there are more injuries than are serious enough for somebody to go to the emergency room. I mean, think about it, for you to go to the emergency room or you to take your child to the emergency room, you have to be hurt or pretty sick. So that's a higher level. And there are all kinds of injuries that happen at home and are taken care of at home and the kids are just fine, but those are still injuries as well. The kinds of injuries that rise to the level of sending somebody to the emergency room, with particularly with children, usually involve choking hazards, And in some cases, toys that have broken and the child has gotten a severe cut. And then with older kids, sometimes it's accidents involving scooters. You know, the kids aren't wearing a helmet, things like that.
4: You have a a section on recall toys. What's the problem on recall toys?
5: Well, of course, toys can get recalled because they're dangerous. So toys are recalled for a reason, because they've been found to be dangerous. Maybe they were put on the market a week ago or a month ago or even years ago. And there have either been enough complaints that have been filed with regard to that toy or some kind of testing by the CPSC or perhaps by the company itself indicated that there's a problem with that toy. So it gets recalled. Now, what we found, which, of course, and you probably know, it's illegal to sell recalled toys, illegal. And yet it is still happening. And so we launched this investigation and we set out this year, or actually during the month of October, we set out to look at all of the toys that had been recalled during this calendar year and to see how many of them that we could buy. Now we didn't try to buy all of them because some of them were like super huge and they would be really cumbersome to ship. And some of them, there were only, you know, a handful, 50 or 100 that were recalled, and it just wasn't quite, you know, didn't rise to the level of being a, a concern or something we could probably get our hands on. A couple of the recalls were kind of offbeat kinds of things, like there was something for kite string. So we focused on the toys that we thought were relevant that would be something that parents would buy for their preschoolers or their older kids, and that there were hundreds or thousands of the items that were recalled. So when we had our list, we were able, actually, in the month of October, able to buy half of the recalled toys that we tried to buy, which I found to be stunning. I mean, that's just shocking because, again, it's illegal to sell recalled toys, and we had no problem doing so.
4: Do you have a list of the recalled toys by brand name on your website?
5: It's actually in the report in the appendix.
4: And what's the website?
5: Well, in our Trouble in Toyland report... And then it's, it's under the PERG Education Fund website. Or you can go to toysafetytips.org.
4: Toysafetytips.org. You also talk about counterfeit toys. Why are toys subject to counterfeit and by whom?
5: Well, in a lot of the cases, the toys are manufactured overseas. And you could have a really hot item that's hard to find. And so it's an opportunity for a bad guy to try and make a counterfeit version that looks like, you know, the regular version. And it may or may not actually have the brand name. It may not say Barbie. It may not say Fisher Price or whatever, but it's meant to exactly mimic what the toy looks like with the same colors and everything like that. I mean, the counterfeit toys, like I said, they're seizing an opportunity. Either there's a popular toy that they know they can sell, or it's a hard to find toy. And So what happens is merchants in this country will either knowingly or unknowingly buy counterfeit toys, like I said, usually from international sellers. And, of course, the problem is if these toys are coming from other countries and they're counterfeits, they're not going to comply necessarily with U.S. safety standards. You know, there are more than 100 safety standards that toys must comply with, everything from toxics to small parts and, and everything in between. And so these counterfeit toys are dangerous, they're unsafe, they're unregulated, they're under the radar, and they should not be able to be sold. Now, I will say that Customs manages to seize a lot of the counterfeit toys that do attempt to be shipped into this country, but they don't get everything.
4: What is the Consumer Product Safety Commission website on toy safety information? Because they have information over the years that you wouldn't have on your own website.
5: Correct. Can you get Um, that? Yes, I can. There's two websites that I'll give you. One is cpsc.gov backslash recalls. And that's a good place for consumers to go to check whether toys that they're thinking about buying or that they got as a, you know, their kids got as a gift, or maybe you've had it for years. Maybe your kid got it last year. And it's been recalled since, and you won't necessarily know unless you heard about it on the news or if you go check. So people should go check. So it's cpsc.gov backslash recalls. And the other website that's important that's also under the CPSC is saferproducts.gov. So saferproducts, plural.gov And if you go to that website and type in a couple of keywords, you can see not only recalls of products, but you can also find complaints that have been filed. So, you know, you could have dozens of complaints that might be filed with about a particular toy and it hasn't been recalled yet, but the CPSC looks at those complaints and that's part of what they use to determine whether a product should be recalled. But even if it hasn't been recalled yet, it might be a heads up to you that, you know what, hey, maybe this toy isn't right for my child.
4: In your report, Trouble in Toyland 2022, You have an intriguing statement that says toys that violate our children's privacy. What do you mean by that?
5: Well, technology is a great thing, except when it's not. And of course, just like we all have, you know, phones and computers and Alexas and all kinds of things in our homes, and a lot of people like them, but there's a downside when it comes to our kids. So we have an increasing number of smart toys, which, you know, in some levels can be good. Maybe it keeps the kids' interest. Maybe there's an educational value. But in a lot of cases, these smart toys come with microphones or Bluetooth enabled or even cameras. And then sometimes there's data collection that goes on and it can be with like, you know, little doll babies that are aimed at five-year-olds. So the problems are when these toys are invading our children's privacy, collecting information about them, maybe without the parents' knowledge, and, and then, in some cases, the information can be used to market to the child, which is wrong, or spy on the child, which is creepy, or in some cases perhaps even stalk the child. I mean, this information, and this happens to all of us, but as adults, it's a little bit different. But when you have information being collected about a young child and it's being sold to who knows who in what you know corner of the world, It's very upsetting. And really, parents need to read the terms and conditions of any kind of smart toy that they get or that they get as a gift. Because, I mean, if you don't read it, you don't know. And there are a lot of things that parents can opt out of, you know, turning off settings and doing this and that. And then there are other things that, you know, you may just decide, hey, this toy is just way too much trouble and I don't want my child to play with it, or I don't want my child to play with it unsupervised.
4: Well, my sister, Laura, when she was raising her three children, she sidestepped all these problems by encouraging the children to make their own toys. They made very interesting toys themselves and never had to go into the marketplace at all. Do you know anything about the make your own toy efforts around the country?
5: I mean, I honestly don't, not on any kind of formal basis. I mean, I know that my boys sometimes made their own toys and it's certainly good because Whether you're trying to do it to save money or because you're trying to avoid going out in the unknown marketplace, I found that it kind of enhanced creativity. You know, it allowed them to be able to think, gee, you know, how would I design a toy? Now, some people might say, yeah, my kids made toys. They dug the pots and pans out of the kitchen cupboards and banged on them. I don't think that's what you're talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I mean, there are plenty of websites and family groups that do have ideas for how Families can make their own toys, and I think that's an idea that's worth looking at.
4: We're talking with Teresa Murray, who is the principal author of this report on dangerous toys 2022. Steve, David.
0: Yeah, Teresa. Personal question: In your family, are you or your extended family? Are you uh, especially during the holiday, birthday seasons? Are you the go-to person where they they say check with Teresa? If we could buy this toy or you go to you go to your you know a, a brother's house or and you see a toy and you go uh-uh no no gotta get gotta get rid of that are you that person
5: yeah i i oftentimes am because my kids are grown.
0: popular or unpopular
5: does it make me popular You said? or unpopular no usually popular because if i stop somebody from buying something that could be dangerous or at least that, that you know the toy should be used in a way that wasn't obvious, then they're appreciative of it. So sometimes they make a different choice. If it's a gift that they've gotten and they're not quite sure about it, then you know they may decide to return it, or they may decide that it's just appropriate to play with it under supervision.
0: Very good.
3: David? Teresa, I wanted to ask you about the questionable provenance of these toys we buy for our kids. If toy stores are closing around the country. Does that make it more dangerous when parents are trying to purchase toys because they have to buy these toys online and do they know where they're getting their toys from?
5: Yeah, you make an absolutely great point. I mean, there are a lot of things that are tragic about toy stores, local toy shops closing over the years, just like local bookstores and other types of small businesses, but particularly in the case of toys, it takes away the opportunity of parents to go in and, you know, touch and feel and look at toys and talk with the the store owner who probably is pretty knowledgeable and make sure they're making the best selection for their child. And you're absolutely right. If you're buying things online, which a lot of us end up having to do with whatever it is, you oftentimes there's not transparency about the seller or where the product came from. There are lots of question marks. And it might be okay if you're buying shoes or a CD or something, or even perhaps electronics. But if it's something for your child, it can be very scary.
4: Is there anything in closing, Teresa, that you want to mention that we didn't ask you about?
5: Yeah, a couple of things that I think are important is, one, we are advocating for a couple of pieces of legislation in Congress. The INFORM Act and the SHOP-SAFE Act both of which target merchants and not just suppliers when it comes to counterfeit goods, stolen goods, those kinds of things. Because, you know, I mean, bad guys who are supplying dangerous products, they may not care about breaking the law, but the merchants do. So that'll be a good step to help protect families from counterfeits. And then the other thing that I think is just a a big takeaway here, families should realize and remember that just because a toy is for sale, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe. You know, it could be a recalled toy. It could be a counterfeit toy, or it could be a toy that's just not appropriate for your child. Particularly if you have a household where you have kids of different ages, you know, you might have a two-year-old, an eight-year-old, and the eight-year-old's toy is great, but not if that child isn't responsible enough to keep it away from the two-year-old. And so parents need to make, you know, not just quick decisions, Parents need to consider whether everything is right for their child. But like I said, just because something's for sale, people shouldn't automatically assume that, hey, this is great. I'll buy this for my kid or for my niece or my grandchild or whatever. And the other thing that's kind of related to that that we do stress in our report is whether your child is has gotten a new toy for Christmas or Hanukkah. Or if it's a toy they've had for a while, parents really need to check out the toy, especially if you have a young child, a preschooler, who might be at risk for a choking hazard. But if there are pieces, you know, you need to look at them and make sure that nothing's loose that could break off. If there are battery compartments, you need to make sure that they're secure. They're required to be secure, but maybe they got jostled loose in shipping. So it's a new toy. And then also, even if it's a toy your, your child has had for six months or a year, You need to check and make sure that that toy is still as safe as when you got it.
4: Well, your report ends on a a very broad note of responsibility. You say, quote, everyone, retailers, toy manufacturers, regulators, lawmakers, consumer advocates, and families need to do more to protect children, unquote. And in this report, you have in living color 10 of this year's recalls. And you name the brands. Like... 2,600 Koyo bunka the Squig plush toys. The pom-poms can detach from the toy, posing a choking hazard to young children, the Consumer Product Safety Commission said. So the report gets very specific in that way. And thank you very much for doing this work. And thank the U.S. Perg Education Fund for supporting it. And I hope that listeners will be more alert in buying these toys. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure here. Just be more alert and get the information that's now available to you free that we discussed on this program. Thank you very much, Teresa Murray.
5: Nice talking with you. Thanks for having me.
0: We've been speaking with Teresa Murray. We will link to her work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Eric Lipton and Teresa Murray. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, go to our Substack page at com for bonus material we call the wrap-up. Transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio
3: Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free, go to Nader.org.
0: For more from Russell Kyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour and learn about iconic tort cases from history. To order your copy
3: of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to Capitol Hill Citizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky.
0: Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt.
3: Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph.
4: Thank you, everybody. I'm only trying to school
1: you Listen to me, people Do you understand we gotta Stand up Oh, you've been sitting way too
3: long Oh, Deborah, You know what's right and you know what's wrong Rise up